right. I think I'm agreeing with with Angela's perspective that this is a psyop at this point. <laughs> yeah, I just refuse to believe. I refuse to believe that this man vomited forth these Republican talking points, managed managed to get himself aligned and inside of the state committees of three states. And this was all just, he just happens to be a snake oil salesman. I mean, I, I, I guess not, I guess I'm maybe of two minds on it actually. Like PSYOP is almost like more, the more charitable read. The less charitable read is that he's, he actually believes this stuff and that the people in the state committees that are pushing it actually believe it and that's actually worse i think hello sisters and welcome grab a drink and a familiar cozy up by a bubbling cauldron and join us for this meeting of the sisters of the night caucus say hello sisters hello i am katie i'm angela and i'm emily and i'm jillian and here we go Part two of Democrats 101, the sisters take on Democrats 101. Um, so just to remind everybody, we started last week. We read this book called Democrats 101. Um, it is ostensibly about finding a unifying set of core values that Democrats can use to reach more voters. Ostensibly. Uh and so we we got about halfway through the book last time. Um, this time, uh, so we're starting on a chapter called Us, which is followed by a chapter called Them. I want to take a, a small moment. Sure. A small moment to say that in, as part of this episode, we are going to delve into the chapter of this book that is entitled Race. Oh, yeah. I, I want it. I almost, I almost forgot about that. How how could you possibly? So I, I know. Well, I was trying to repress it. <laughs> right. But why I want to bring that up is I am of the 100% firm belief that it is we are calling in not calling out and as a white woman i i want to take a moment and say that it is our responsibility to address this and if you are a black or brown listener and you don't want to hear this shit we'll see you next episode that's fine yeah it's totally because good. this is not your this as allies, this is our fight. This is our conversation to have with other white people. That's You don't need to take on that labor or emotional burden. So if you want to peace out, that's 100% cool. And yes, yeah. this is the equivalent of a trigger warning. So yeah, absolutely. Um, So, so the, the chapter we're starting with is called Us, and it starts with the common thread. So his definition here of the common thread is uh, a natural human impulse towards justice. And I, I go back and forth on whether I believe that's a thing. 
Um, like I want to, I want to believe there's a natural impulse for justice. I think that humans are social animals. And so we kind of naturally want to protect our social group. And as the world has gotten smaller in the way that we're able to connect with people all over the place in a way that historically humans have never been able to before, who that is has become very large for some people and for other people they have retreated into um, a, a smaller by definition social group so what he defines as this common thread is essentially like he's like from abolitionists to Harriet Tubman to yada 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 basically everything good that's happened in America is our and when I say our, I mean Democrats, common thread. And maybe that is how this, this the author is dealing with the Democratic Party having supported slavery, but it feels fraught for reasons that we're going to get to later. Um, and so here, here's a quote from the common thread. But as a party, we've lost our grip on that thread in recent years. We talk the talk. We keep coming up with all sorts of policies and positions, but we've slowly stopped walking the walk. We've begun to drift as a party. We've become complacent, arrogant, and more than a little elitist in the process. We've lost touch with our base, which means we've lost touch with who we are. Okay. So number one, the policies are the things that affect people's daily lives. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let that go at all. Um, and number two, who is our base? Who do you think that our base is? And the answer is this, um, Roosevelt's legacy, a grand coalition based above all on labor, finally we get labor, and farmers and black Americans. Keep them happy and they keep us in power. It was a formula, okay. So that the way that that is written is exclusionary of its essence because labor farmers and black Americans, we are keeping them happy and they're keeping us in power. We are them. They are us. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Period. I don't really know um, what to say about that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Um, and frankly, there, I have not seen a single thing in this book that tells me how we're reconnecting with any of these people. Um, and and Emily pointed out, like we are, um, black American. Not we, like we are obviously white people, but as a party, like. We comprise Black Americans, um, labor, farmers, um, or anything else. Um, and by the way, labor and farmers, those are Black Americans, as well as white Americans, as well as every other kind of Americans. So, like, yeah. I don't, I mean, I think that you've hit upon what I've seen as being the most enormous problem with this entire book which is that it refuses in even the smallest way to um, account for or involve intersectionality yeah yep because yeah uh, black americans not just black they also have 
um, jobs and families and identities other than that. They are queer. Indigenous Uh, American. And we have Indigenous Americans. We have Black Indigenous American. There's just, there, you can't, the the cross sections are innumerable and this is why intersectionality is important well that Um, would have required him to do some background reading and then perhaps have to cite um a black woman and i just get the sense that that was not something he's interested in doing because he thinks that won't appeal to us well and let's keep in mind throughout all of this um he only lifted up male politicians yes with a sentence for eleanor roosevelt that was it yeah um so and then he talks about in terms of our of the complacency right what he was talking about there is you know uh democrats were in a sort of ascendancy coming out of fdr uh and so the idea was that you know we ran the table for 50 years and during that time democrats became complacent and arrogant yeah well that's gonna happen if you're in power for a long time i hate to break it to you um we are not perfect none of us um and then he says yeah go ahead historical point we weren't in power for 40 years well that's true the history of i don't know the fucking presidents who had a veto pen yeah. All right. Go um, so he talks about these people that were in office for dozens of years, right? And I think we all know, uh, we can all name politicians that we believe have been in office too long, okay? But here he says, the point is not whether these were good people or whether they were good at their jobs. The point is staying in office became their job. Staying in office became their career, and it was all based on using the same old way of thinking. Now, I bet this man believes in term limits. Oh, God. It's because I bet he does. It's because he's a Republican light. He is Republican light. And and literally, like, you don't get to name check West Virginia and coal miners without realizing that without uh, longstanding representation in pork, and the infrastructure, like, wouldn't even exist in the state of west virginia so Mm -hmm. also by the way pro pork love it love pork pork. all the pork anti-term limits if you are good in your job then you should stay and continue to build power for your constituents Uh, because listen, when I think about people in as far as, yes, uh, there are a lot of people that are in office that I would like to give it a rest. Um, but I can also think of like John Lewis. How long was John Lewis in office? Oh. And also... Yeah. The, the idea of just throwing away institutional knowledge and never holding yeah. it is terrifying. That's insane to me. Like it's you lose so much. So I just you can't like it's not that simple. Like I'm so sorry but it's just not that simple. Um <clears throat> so now remember 
Remember how he just told us that we were responsible for everything good that ever happened. And remember that he spent a lot of time talking about what an amazing person FDR was and how our party simply did not exist before FDR. Okay? I want you to keep that in your mind when you hear this. That same complacency and arrogance also fed our peculiarly democratic affliction of good guy-itis. FDR was practically a saint by the end of his life, our national savior. Contradictory much, buddy. I need, I need, make it make sense. Um, Because at some point, he also calls Republicans the bad guys. And it doesn't, he does not make clear that he doesn't mean that in a serious way. Then he goes on briefly to talk about Hillary Clinton losing, which is the only female politician outside of Eleanor Roosevelt, who I don't believe ever held uh, an elected position of her own in her lifetime. Um, he goes on to talk about Hillary Clinton losing. And what I want to say is this. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. We are in a system that is so deeply rigged against what the majority of people want and it is that way because of our founding fathers who were worried about people falling prey to ideologues but really i kind of think that what they were worried about was the people not wanting what they wanted he goes on Part of that paragraph that you're referencing, it starts with Trump didn't win over the voters, blah, 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 because of what he stood for. I'm sorry. He absolutely did win over voters because of what he stood for. Popular vote, electoral college stuff aside, like he got a lot of fucking votes. Yeah, he did. He won people over. And I'm just going to put this out there. I asked my husband after 2016, once I got over some of the depression, about three months later, why he voted for Donald Trump, you know, and my husband used his brain and intellect and Trump was not his favorite Hillary. He liked less, but it sure as fuck was, oh, wait, about Trump's policies. And I do believe my husband's one of those voters that we're supposed to be trying to win over with all of this drivel. Mm hmm. Emily, you had something to say. Yeah, I mean, look, I lived in the county that voted for Trump with the highest margin during that time. And it was not because of anything that Hillary Clinton did or didn't do. People liked what Trump was saying and they liked his policies. And I feel like what is being said here in this so-called book is that it it's absolving Trump and his voters of any responsibility to those policies and way of campaigning. And I think it's like an extremely tired narrative at this point. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and so like, listen, he, he's uh, uh, above everything else. 2016 was a final failure, not just of our way of thinking, but of our sense of who we are. What we face today, what 2020 made abundantly clear, is that this is nothing less than the search for our identity. I 
Okay, so I'm again going to point out that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, which means that more people believed in what she was selling than believed in what Trump was selling. Which means that, in fact, our values did win. Um, And also, if 2016 did anything, it was not not understanding who we were. It was people understanding who they are and why they need to be involved. And uh, I know that because millions of people hit the streets. I have never seen people so active. Um, were there problems with Hillary Clinton's campaign? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, uh, I could go on and on about those. However, that didn't, we didn't lose our identity. And it goes on into this next section. And I, I think we've kind of like gone into this. Yeah. Maybe it's just me. Like, mm-hmm. there's a whole point where in this section he talks about people not having and you said this actually in the last episode people don't have time in their lives to follow politics closely well guess what my dude what the fuck do you think political parties and campaigns are actually for it's because they're a shortcut for people yeah it's they're a short like you wouldn't be a democrat most likely you wouldn't be a democrat if you didn't think this is where my values are And the reason that you get that you join a party is in part because that is a way to signal to you, this is a person who probably shares my values. But but even with the values and another sticking point for me, Uh working people, which by the way, he also like calls out a lot, like he really minimizes quote unquote working people a lot in here. Yeah. Working people care about things like affordable health care, mm-hmm. reference my Trump voting diabetic husband, but yeah. those working people are not dumb. And I think uh, we actually do know that. And they see through how like DC folks keep bending to the insurance lobby. This is why mm-hmm. my spouse is a conservative independent because and there's corporatism. That, That's yeah. what they're mad at. Yes, they're mad at corporatism. And it's like, and he goes in like people trust people, uh, you know, trust people to take care of these things for him. And I'm like, I'm sorry, my husband and frankly me, we do not trust people to take care of things for him. And he makes these assumptions through all of this about voters that is just like coming straight from cable news program talking points. It's absolutely infuriating. And emotion versus reason is like this whole section. Yeah. And emotion versus reason with political parties, that's messaging. That's marketing. And when we talk about messaging, messaging is a form of marketing you fuck with. So here's the thing. Okay, so in emotion versus reason, he says the elite of our party are forever trying to be enlightened to couch our messages and intellectual ideas to quote resurrect the primacy of reason over passion unquote as one scholar put it which scholar we may never know 
because you can't use footnotes. Oh, wait, can we put that quote into Google and see who said it? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, while we're doing that, who who's doing that? No one. Yeah. And who, who, by definition, who are the party elites? Are they, I don't know who the party like elites the, are like in his the, mind. He, you know, the top ranking Congress people? Are they the, the funders? Is it the chairman of the national party, the state parties? Like, is it, is it the random members of the Democratic Party who have PhDs? Like, who, who is it? Who, who are the elites? I don't know. Well, and I, my larger question here for Jim is, how can you talk about the elites on one hand, but then actually, like, when speaking about voters, use the framework of people voting against their own self-interest, which is yeah. inherently elitist. I just, and, and, and like, this is going to happen again and again from pretty much this point on is, I would like a concrete example of where he sees this happening because uh, as Katie pointed out last episode, we have a combined lot of years of experience in this field. And I have never seen anybody talk to a voter on a door, trying to couch a message in an intellectual idea if anything, you want to couch an intellectual idea in a freaking message. Uh, so I don't, Yeah, I'm very confused. As a matter of fact, Jim, we train people to find out about what voters care about and then talk to them about the policies that we have that will most impact and improve their material conditions of their life. Um. The end of Norman Rockwell. Um, so this is all I've got, really. Uh, so now the end of Norman Rockwell, the the a few words about elitism happens in the middle of, of the end of Norman Rockwell. So we're going to take it as it comes. All right. So at the beginning of the Norman Rockwell bit, um, just like here's what I've got is that Norman Rockwell, Rockwell, okay, an artist who did, you know, sort of idealized scenes of American life, quote unquote, right? Um, it was a wildly idealized version of white suburbia that was never, ever, ever real in any sense for a majority of Americans. Period. Period. It just wasn't. Also, now I want to say it like Norman Walkwell. Norman Walkwell. Thank you for that. Um, and then it was propaganda at the yeah. time. It was propaganda at the time. And like, you know, okay. Um, a few words about elitism. <laughs> okay. So we're, he says we're shoving politically correct language on people. Number one. Right wing talking person, point. Right wing talking point. Right wing point. talking point. Right wing talking points. You know who came up with the term political correctness? Republicans. Don't adopt their stuff. Hey, my man, when we as a society, society went from saying outright racial slurs to words that we no longer use in public to refer to Black people, to African-American or Black, 
was that political correctness or was that just becoming more respectful of our fellow human beings? Because asking people to use uh, the proper pronoun to address a person or saying pregnant people instead of pregnant women isn't forcing anything on anyone. It's broadening. And by the way, for the most part, I'm not even really seeing people be like, you have to say pregnant people or you're a bad person. It's for the most part, it's like, okay, I'm saying pregnant people because I want to be inclusive of, of, you know, non-binary and uh, trans men, non-binary folks and trans men. Okay. That's all. That's all. Um, And I'm not forcing anybody else to say it. The real deal is that people on the right are real butthurt by the fact that we're even saying it and they get such a bug up their ass about it. Um, and if, and my last word on this is if you think the way that we speak about the issues is, isn't important or that we don't need to learn to use the correct words, I need you to go look up stochastic terrorism, then get back to me. But my biggest issue with this whole like little <laughs> sub note or whatever the fuck this is mm-hmm. on elitism in the middle of the Norman Rockwell bullshit is that more than 60 years ago, social scientists and historians on the left who were anti-McCarthy, by the way, he never really talks about McCarthyism, mm-hmm. already called out what the right was doing to try to disparage elitism but they didn't call them that they were called intellectuals you know those university folks this started a long time ago this shit ain't new and those same folks who've been disparaged by the conservative minded people for centuries like they've been disparaged for centuries right Mm -hmm. anyone with a brain has been disparaged by conservative folks forever you have to look at the power hungry church arresting and torturing free thinking people from healers to scientists for a very long time no i mean katie hit the nail on the head and uh you know this is all just i mean the anti-intellectualism has i mean folks have gone after intellectuals under a million and one different guises, whether it was, you know, um, communism and socialism or perceived homosexuality. Um, I mean, these things were huge. There were congressional hearings. And so like to pretend the culture war and quote unquote identity politics is a new thing is is, is an extraordinarily bad reading of history and and oh and it doesn't do us any service katie's 100 percent right yeah another yeah. one to add is adding the the cosmopolitan um dog whistle as um anti-semitic but we can also use urban as a dog whistle for other you know yeah. groups so I think, you know, it's just so prevalent and it has been for a really long time. So the, the inherent problem with with elitism and talking about elitism here is that this guy, this guy is using the language of white grievance. That is what he is using. He is using the Republican 
language of white grievance within the Democratic Party to attempt to speak to rural and small town Dems and it's dangerous and disingenuous. And I find it, I find the whole, all of this very alarming. Like you cannot in this book say, who are we? Who are we? What is us? And the reality is that us is black and educated and then treat that in the same token like it's a problem and then start talking in the language of white grievance and borderline white nationalism. It, none of this works. None no. of this works. Well, and like the the one of the many things that bothers me about this elitism label is like, number one, if you sound smart, you get to be called an elitist and then everything that you say is written off. Um, Two, I think that it ignores the history of the United, the exclusionary history of education in the United States and the extraordinarily hard work that people in particular people of color black folks like there's a reason there are historically black universities my my guy um and education is for most people for many people it is a way to um you know be class mobile you know to move up economically uh not so much now because you know uh degrees are expensive and the jobs don't pay enough after elitism he goes back to norman rockwell and like here is what i have to say about that um this very clearly as we pointed out comes from this perspective of an older white person um and he talks more than one time about people being afraid of all the changes for so many people in the united states this is i'm not afraid i'm breathing a sigh of relief and also maybe there's a whole hell of a lot of people who are afraid of the changes that they are seeing coming from the right and white nationalism, which you seem to be yeah, very frankly, comfortable I'm, couching. I'm from. very afraid of that. Yeah. Saying the, the saying that people are afraid of the changes thing reminds me of right wingers these days who like don't want certain things taught in schools because their kids aren't able to handle it. And it's like, mm -hmm. they don't want their kids learning about these parts of American history, but then it's, totally ignoring the fact that other Americans have been living those things that they don't want to have taught. And it's like, like if, if your perspective is people are afraid of changes, then it's what about the people who have been living a life that in a society that didn't include their perspective or valued their perspective, you know? And it's like, that's what's totally being left out of this book. Right. And I think the other thing is that, and he says this, like when he fawns over Newt Gingrich about, you know, repeating the same thing over and over and over again, the more that you repeat to people that they are afraid of the changes, the more that they are going to retract into that fear. 
And so stop telling people they're afraid when in fact they might not be. Meet people where they're at. Don't assume where they are. Okay. Uh, if we then go back to the beginning, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not randomly chosen words. No kidding. Uh, I did not think that Thomas Jefferson pulled that shit out of a hat. I didn't think that he was writing using a refrigerator magnet poetry set. Uh, yeah. Uh, one thing is certain, he says, our declaration of values has to be devoid of politics, especially our own. What, what are our values then? What does that even mean? I don't understand. Everything is political. Stop being mad about it. If my values don't indicate, indicate to you my politics, then I'm not practicing my values. And that's a problem for me. He also thinks American values are something we have to accomplish. And I'm here to tell you that a value is not a thing that you accomplish. Values have no endpoint. Um, I have arrived. I have become yeah. a full embodiment of my values. Behold. What? But now I'm done. Yeah. What? What? That's not how anything works. Uh, he then goes on to talk about how we're the original deal makers. And um, his use of the word deal maker is very clearly... Uh, an attempt to appropriate Trump's identity for the purpose of pulling people to our side. That is simply not ever going to work. It just doesn't. And I just, like, I don't, no, no. So let's talk about race. So, so then we get to the, the cursed section of this book entitled yeah, I'm gonna let you go nuts Angela yeah I'm just gonna go nuts so then we can have a full discussion on this because there is so much to discuss and I, I would once again like to frame this with like this is a moment where it's like come get your white people um so we are your white people and we're coming to get you because this is disgusting. Okay, so this chapter opens up with the first sentence, which literally feels like it was written by someone writing an eighth grade essay and that they would have got a C on. And it says, race holds a very special role for us. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Who's us? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I still don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I I suspect it's the old white people reading this book. Um, yeah, probably very special role. I mean, how condescend like the condescension in that phrasing is bizarre. Okay, so I I feel it's important in this section to pull out direct quotes because I do not want anyone to be able to say that we were taking this man out of context. Uh, so I'll give you this passage. The truth is, as Democrats, we no longer have a clear racial identity, and it's the cause of a lot of our current turmoil. No one knows quite what's coming, what's going on, let alone what's coming down the pike. Who exactly are we going to be in five years, in 10 years, in 20? And how are we going to get there? Okay, Jim, 
you know what we're going to be? We're going to be Democrats. That's what we're going to be. What I think Jim's question is, is very different than that. Because I don't know anyone, anyone, with the exception of white nationalists, who are preoccupied with the concept of, quote unquote, clear racial identity. Ding, 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 ding. So the fact that this book is called Democrats 101 and is being schlepped around in multiple states and is questioning what the clear racial identity is of the Democratic Party and that that is the cause of our turmoil is mind-blowing. Now, I also want to couch this just for a minute. I want, to, I want to point a few things out for people who have not read this book to understand. This man has made a conscious decision to go against the AP style guide and capitalize the word white this entire book. It is capitalized everywhere it is. Capital W, white. This book contains one photo and one photo only. And that photo is a graphic photo of the lynching. And thirdly, this man has chosen to feel it is appropriate to use the N-word in this book. Okay. Let's go on to the next direct quote. One thing's for sure. If we really want to be the party of everybody, our central message going forward can't be about racial identity. If the Democratic Party truly is everyone, if we're Black as well as capital W, white, Hispanic, and everything else, then we cannot separate out one group from ourselves and say they're different, even in their time of need. Hashtag all lives matter. What the holy hell is this? This is a Republican talking point. This is white grievance and white nationalist. This is all lives matter. <sighs> Why? Why do black and brown communities have different needs? It's because, because we live in a systemically racist system. Beautiful. Yes. It's not beautiful. By, yes. by design. By design. And it's because of the systemically racist policies that this man has been hell-bent on avoiding discussing for this entire book. I wonder why. We cannot solve systemic injustices by singing kumbaya and reciting a creed in the equivalent of secular church meetings. So, yeah. So, I mean, he, this is, it is just such a flattening. All right. So, America has faced two forms of racial discrimination. Two forms. <laughs> two forms. Huh? One kind is displayed against immigrants. That discrimination, racism, when it's extreme, is based on the very human bias against outsiders, 
an innate prejudice against people who look differently, speak differently, or act differently. It's been going on since the beginning of time, and it isn't racial at its core. It's cultural. And when immigrant groups change their culture over generations, that discrimination slowly ends. The descendants of these immigrants become part of the culture they initially rejected, that initially rejected them. They assimilate. And over time, they become a part of the greater whole. If we were all just more white. Yep. If we were all assimilated, I don't think that sounds white nationalistic at all. But also, let's point out a little more history, right? Two forms of racism and one was just like totally cultural. You're a fucking idiot, Jim. Go on, Angela. Terribly sorry. No, it's, listen, this is painful. This, this is, it is painful to realize that individuals within our party are, are peddling this nonsense. So in reality, the thing that Jim is attempting to describe is xenophobia. It has a name. It is not the, the second form of racism. Um, additionally, additionally, and this is where, this is where attempting to have these conversations without intersectionality or any form of greater understanding leads, leads you straight down the path of, of white nationalist drivel. Um, Emily. Yes. As a Jew, how, how do you feel about this? I mean, you know, I'm white passing, white appearing person. Most people would not think, look at me and be like, oh, Jewish person, I don't have stereotypical whatever features. But people who appear more Jewish definitely still receive a lot of discrimination in certain parts of the country. And there's still violent acts carried out against Jews within, you know, recent history in Pennsylvania. Like, it's not that these things just go away. It's This is a ridiculous statement to make. It's just like, like, I feel like he's just imagining like the melting pot concept. Mm -hmm. Oh, the melting pot. Everyone's just in it. And over time, we all just become the same and it's all good. There's no more problems. We're just in there like hanging out together and we all love it. And like, that's not reality and it never has been. No. And I think like one of the things that Angela, you and I talked about, um, it, because like being from Western Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania um, had received a lot of immigrants um later on right like italian immigrants german immigrants um everything uh like and so the point here is that like assimilation loses something for us like we grew up in an area where there's like there's the hungarian club the croatian club the sons of italy like you name it what this guy doesn't understand is that whiteness is a construct period okay yeah Whiteness is nothing more than a construct in relationship to a dominant hegemony, okay? 
That's all. And as a construct, the the the, the guardrails, so to speak, and who is allowed into the definition of whiteness has been flexible through time. Make no mistake that this was done to benefit certain political realities. But to look at the other side of it here, and I think this is extremely important to say, is that success in America has long been tied to a proximity to whiteness and that ability to pass, which, you know, Emily, Emily touched on. So all of these European immigrants who were at the period of time in which they came to the United States, not a part of the WASP identity of whiteness, of the WASP de definition of whiteness, they changed their culture and assimilated for access to the protection and the economic benefits that came with the proximity to whiteness. This was this, yeah. some happy horseshit melting pot. No, and like let's let's talk about the limits to that, right? Because like let here let's talk about an example, right? My grandfather, my maternal grandfather, fought in World War II. His parents were German from Germany. Okay, they did not teach him teach him to speak German for a reason. Mm -hmm. Two, he had before joining the army, he was investigated by the FBI because he was German, but then. He joined the military. He went off to war. Now, had my grandfather been a Japanese American, what would have happened to him? He might have been in an internment camp. Well, because he didn't look because, you know, there's there comes a point where we can't like visually make you white. And so then you're too dangerous. Well, you're othered. And I mean, yeah. like I said, any any fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth generation API American or Hispanic mm -hmm. American, you know, well, very obviously could, could give you a million and one examples of times when they were asked wait, where, where they came from. Um, so, so to move on, our, our, our friend wants to know, our friend, Jim Purvis, mm -hmm. wants to know how then do we reconcile our very different attitudes on race? Well, you can start by talking to people who have a different racial identity than you. And if you're too nervous to talk to them, you can always read the books that they've written about these topics. They're very informative and insightful. <laughs> Just a thought. Yeah. Also, Jim Purvis, who is this book for? Because let me tell you something. I thought this book was for Democrats, Democrats who've already uh, been committed to the cause of racial justice for generations who have it written into our platform. And um, as, as far as I see it, we don't have very different attitudes on race within our party. And if you're looking to introduce them, get the fuck out. Um. Well, and, and it's about to get yeah. real spicy because we're just going to move straight into this next thing, which is like yeah. really whoa. And what about the racial issues facing Native Americans? 
or Hispanic Americans or Asian Americans. Everyone's racial issues are important to them and every injustice is valid. And if that wasn't enough, we all have differing ideas on what's actually going on and even of what the basic facts are. No. No, we don't, Jim. No, we don't. No. You are literally parroting within the Democratic Party, Republican talking points, white nationalist talking points. You are basically walking in with this book that basically says, all lives matter, all racism matters. No one's fucking arguing that. We did all this in 2020. This is a man who literally, I guarantee to you, this is this is like someone who would have posted about the Irish slaves in 2020. Oh God! We all, we all know we saw that. So, uh, yeah. Please discuss because I'm so full of rage I can't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like for me, what this boils down to is the word the words important to them. But okay. what about right. the okay? Even if his okay, if he is us, let's say his his definition of us is clearly white men, white people. But like, but he's not talking at all about like our, 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 in quotes, difficulties of handling other races, like the inherent racism of whiteness. Like he's not talking about that at all as the us. Like that's not his version of the problem. His version of the problem is what about the other people? And that, yeah. I really, before we move on, I think the crux is here. This is a direct quote. Racial injustice, when it's about race, but any injustice, when it's appropriate. Economic injustice in rural America. The cultural injustice of entire, mostly white communities being left behind. This is the chapter on race. This bitch read hillbilly elegy and he was like oh my god i am so hard okay he just inserted rural whites into the discussion around race but doesn't reference class no 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 no. perhaps and can't talk about economic policies because we're not talking no, no. about policies perhaps that could have been a chapter but instead we had to get our own fucking version of jd vance up in here no no no, 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 no. This is wrong. Pushing this is wrong. This book is wrong. No more. Yeah. Uh, so in the them, uh, I like this. I like this quote that you've pulled out, Angela. Uh, it says, they love lofty sounding political slogans, the same political euphemisms Reagan was so good at creating. And like Karl Marx before them and Newt, they love to project this ideology as a grand battle between two moral systems, good versus evil, the idea that we are a country that has lost its way, America in peril, a place where moral values are in endless decay. This man just Putting Karl Marx and Newt Gingrich on like the same end of a spectrum is the most mind exploding fucking thing I have ever seen in my entire life. Also, I was not aware that Karl Marx was a sloganeer. <laughs> like, I just... Uh, I mean, don't think so. <laughs> I didn't know that his deal was, like, lofty-sounding political slogans. Uh, 
yeah uh as as angela points out he literally sent out a fundraising email using this framing this week um a fundraising email for his self-published book because he's not at all like Uh doing this for money or something feels like a grift um so Wait, listen, he sent out a fundraising email for himself. It wasn't even yes. for like a party, like a for, democratic it was for his organization. Democrats, oh, that's nice. Democrats 101 is it 501c3? It's, it's yeah, he's building yeah. a movement. C4, C4, it's a 501c4. Mm-hmm. His, his movement. So he's found a yeah, he's he's grifting then. He's like oh, found yeah. a grift. Does he do his workshops for free or is there like some sort of payment? I don't know. I mean, his I have payment. Yeah, I mean, like, I know he's been with the PA Dems for free that I'm aware of, unless somebody that I don't know about is paying him particularly. But so, okay, so them is equally, I, I don't even know. All right, I don't even know what to tell you. Um, Who are I, these people anyway? Oh. Katie's turn. Oh, this section. This section sent me off, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to be 100% coherent during this. But first of all, remember in last episode, we were talking about some of the contradictions between parts of the book. Mm-hmm. First of all, he lifts up some super awkward love for the founding fathers yeah. in the first part. And now he's just completely berating them while also not being 100% historically accurate, almost on point, but not quite. So like there's this complete contradiction there. And I want to go off so much we can reference earlier thoughts about my spouse like he doesn't like both parties a lot because of lobbyists corporatism etc you can also reference jillian's early or statements about you know meeting people where they are and kitchen table stuff from the last episode but he basically spends this entire section of the book doing what doing what talking about policy he also then goes on to make sweeping generalizations, again, seemingly grounded in his favorite cable news talking points about MAGA Republicans, uh, Republicans, Tea Party Republicans, urban and rural people, and it makes me want to stab my eyes out. And then he makes a reference, an incredibly, oh wait, oh wait, elitist reference to NASCAR and pickup trucks. So wait a minute here, buddy. What the fuck are you saying? Because I thought you just told us in the last chapter we can't be elitists. And then... Well, no, it's our fault that NASCAR and pickup trucks have become politicized. Well, I mean, obviously, even though he says that it's what the Republicans wanted. Right. And (sighs) and let them do that. Yeah. But then, then he gets into this whole thing about majorities. And how 51% isn't good enough. And this also set me off. Because holy fucking lack of political experience, my dude. And I'm going to use the pencil, the, the current Pennsylvania legislature as an example. And I'm going to, and Emily mentioned this in the last episode. This is where I'm bringing this up. I have not seen to this point in this book any references to gerrymandering and or the Voting Rights Act, and then, of course, how a conservative SCOTUS gutted it, etc., in any meaningful place in this book at all. We have in Pennsylvania, so anyway, in Pennsylvania, we've chipped away at the state house, await some gerrymandering. We just did redistricting. We held the governor's seat, and we have a Republican Senate. How the fuck? 
do you think we accomplish our goals with a GOP Senate that we're probably not going to flip till two, four years from now? It is about every electoral battle and not fucking super majorities tomorrow. And why he's harping on how we have to have these trifectas and super majorities is inconscionable to me when this is not how any of this works. Right. Okay. So listen, Um, this is wild. He then goes into a piece called The Dark Empire, which I just, I don't, so this, go ahead, Angela. Yeah, the whole thing's about the Coach brothers. I'm like the Coke brothers and the reality of the situation is in 2020, Democratic dark money spending outpaced Republicans. And this is like basically like a 2008 take on all of this. And we're all adults here. And this is quite frankly preposterous. This is like a, this is like fake ass hyperbole outrage. And it shows his lack of any real connection outside of whatever this grift is it shows a lack of any real connection to democratic politics or advocacy that has existed for a quite a long time which frankly pays all of our goddamn paychecks mm-hmm. he has mm-hmm. no concept no there's well, a and- lack of sophistication is profound in knowledge and he's also mixing some really dangerous theories together and this is just uh the way my brain works kind of thing if you're talking about political theory talk about political theory if you're talking about philosophy you're talking about philosophy if you're talking about economics you're talking about economics he's mixing some issue disciplines here and actually what is a dangerous way that is like how people ended up starting saying fascists and socialists are the same thing which we all know is incorrect Right. And then, but then like, we're going to go into myths and fables, his, his myths and fables bit. And, and in there, he actually says that capital, he points out that capitalism is not, is not a political thing at all. Capitalism is totally neutral. You guys, did you know capitalism is neutral? Capitalism is totally neutral. And by the way, he also talks about like basic human rights. And I'm just sitting here reading that sentence going, Basic human rights are a democratic value because we don't want to direct quote from whatever the fuck the conservative thing was, eradicate trans people, prevent women from life-saving healthcare, and so yeah. on. He also doesn't address, like, ever in this book, you know, he talks about the history and the differences and blah, 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 blah. He doesn't address two fundamental differences between Republicans and Democrats. And for him, I have made this very simplistic. And I'm going to say Republicans and Democrats for the last 40 to 80 years, because mm-hmm. we can debate on where you want to discuss various political and historic shifts. Anyway. Yeah, sure. Fine. Republicans put Band-Aids on problems and Democrats work to have a whole care plan. Basic difference. Yeah. Literally, go read the platforms. That's the difference if you want a fucking simple sentence to describe this. The other thing is Republicans look to help themselves when Democrats look to help others. If people want to boil this shit down, there you go. There's the differences. I'm intentionally speaking generally here. Do not hold my feet to the fire. It's not great on this second point, but there actually has been some real sociological research done on all of this. And then he like goes 
to the end of this entire section in this myths and fables, whatever the fuck, and mm-hmm. says, blah, 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 create a significant majority in America that emotionally identifies with American values. That's what we need to do. We as Democrats need to create a significant majority in America that emotionally identifies with American values. What American values, Mr. Purvis? What values are those? White peoples, white supremacy, patriarchy, colonialism, corporate greed. Tell me exactly which American values that are built into our society should we be buying into? Oh, well, Katie, you sound like someone who wants to pledge to adopt the creed. If I wanted a creed, I'd go to fucking church. Oh, oh, I'm Amen, as it were. Yes, exactly. Amen. And I'm I'm going to add, I will continue. You want to know who also had creeds politically? Mm-hmm. By the way, you can Google this, or I could put it in a fake-ass endnote for you. Mussolini, Stalin, and Hitler had fucking creeds. We don't need creeds. We don't want creeds. We don't want creeds. We are a multitude. And no, that, one, no one asked for this. No one asked for this. Um, you know, so here's the other thing, right? So he does capitalism, then he does socialism. Um, he points out that over time, Republicans have managed to turn socialist into a bad word. Um, and he says, the mere fact that we Democrats immediately start defending ourselves when faced with the label is evidence enough. Um, now, I'm going to recognize that there are Democrats that immediately start defending themselves when somebody calls them socialists. And I'm here to tell you right now, stop it. Stop it. Bring it back to the issue that you're talking about, because socialism isn't the issue. Talk about why running, why you are running, what is important to you, what are the changes that you want to make in the lives of the people that you want to be your constituents. It's not about socialism and just say, I'm not here to be distracted by Republican talking points. And then move on. Yeah, and maybe talk about some good old fashioned things like funding for for roads and uh, fire trucks and lots talking about funding roads is policy we can't do that yeah we're never going to clean up the word socialist and make it usable politically and we need to quit trying this isn't about truth in semantics it's about the public's long-term emotional perception of words and we've already lost that battle what we need it's over what we need to do is instead is ignore it which essentially is what i just said just like I don't care whether we rehab the word socialist. I don't really think it's a bad word. Uh, I, I, think, I don't think actually a lot of people think it's a bad word. No, and but I actually haven't heard anyone in the last two years having the argument. Like, I think everyone has accepted that we have lost that battle. Yeah, sure. Like, yeah, of course, which is why, which is why we tell people to just move on and not address it. Because well, it's not worthwhile. Oh, and it's I put I put the socialist label being thrown around as a pejorative right up there yeah. with baby killer. You know, like yeah. you don't you don't respond to this shit. You don't respond to that. It's also up uh, there with Democrats are gonna take my guns. Yeah. Right. 
And then government is bad. Now, let me read to you the first part of that. While the government is bad at running an economy, manufacturing things, the communists proved that rather effectively. And you'd have to go pretty far out on the fringe to find anybody in this country who thinks the government should build cars. Can we talk about 2008, please? 2009, when the government bailed out the banks and the auto industry to regulate the economy and spur American manufacturing. But whatever. Shall we move on now? Uh, yeah, um, fighting uh, fighting racism is somehow a liberal thing, racism or xenophobia or homophobia, homophobia you name it. Um, that's This is the biggest myth of all. There's nothing Democrat mm. about being for human rights. Human rights aren't about the left or right. They're about being America, American. Human rights are basic values at the core of the existence of our as a nation. No, it's not. Angela said it earlier. Our core as a nation, like going back to our founding, is smallpox blankets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like again, I understand that we have moved forward as a society in many ways, and that many of us um see human rights as a foundationally important issue. Um and I'm just going to say it. It is Democratic. That's the Democratic Party. If you believe that Republicans are the party of human rights, you are sadly mistaken. And we should celebrate that. And we should celebrate that. I do not understand this idea of taking the very clear differences between the parties and not celebrating the way that we are better. The way that we serve the whatever, whatever you want to call yeah. it, the, the greater angels, so to speak, yeah. you know, yeah. um, to me, both politically and and in, in this value based conversation that for some reason this man wants to have. That's a win. Celebrate the wins. Yeah. Um. He says then, and at some, he says later, and we have helped the Republicans. We have bought into the idea that it's us and them, that things are either left or right, liberal or conservative, right or wrong. It's the assumption that our endless goal is to win that thin slice of America that tips us to 51%. Again, who's saying that? Who is saying that? Um, It's the same subconscious idea that a lot of us cling to that demographics will fix everything. We just need to wait for the babies. No one, no one, no one, no one, no one Jim has espoused or even spoke about the concept of demographics as destiny as it was coined in the media for a real long fucking time. You want to know why, Jim? Eugenics, what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 It, it just, you know, like, I, and like to give an example, right? Um, Montgomery County used to be one of the most Republican counties in the country. It's now not that way. Um, it is, uh, as someone might put in a footnote, quite the opposite. Uh, that's that's just a tag there that he literally did use a footnote that only said quite the opposite. Could just have been added to the sentence. In any case, um, our current governor is from Montco. Uh, our current Democratic governor 
that didn't just like was that partially demographics yes but you know what else it was it was incredibly hard work from montgomery county democrats that weren't willing to accept what their you know the political reality on the ground right um so okay listen we gotta we gotta we gotta keep moving um the democratic creed which i i think it's on his website right yeah yeah it's i think it's on his website so you can you can find that um but like it's very like we believe all people are created equal that this is america's fundamental ideal which we can argue about but we won't right now we believe in America as a democracy, for and by the people. Okay, and we believe that these founding documents, um, the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence, demand freedom, justice, and opportunity for all Americans in full and equal measure, regardless of who you are, what you believe, and where you live. Um, they didn't originally do that. Um, maybe that's that is, as my husband pointed out, probably three fifths correct. With this creed. Mm-hmm. with this creed like people can go yeah. read this fucking creed mind you number six is like hi that's our fucking platform which is you know policy you raging idiot but this whole thing and he defines like next he like starts to go in and define the words and all i can think of is the priests debating at the council of nicaea the nicene <laughs> creed okay that's all yeah. i can picture right now is like does he have multiple personalities here debating this because this shit is already in the platform and all he did was use a bunch of shitty adjectives to say the same thing in a meandering way and i will just say for a second time in as little as 10 minutes the other political people who had creeds were hitler mussolini and stalin so i want to skip ahead to the very last thing I just want want everyone who might not read this to understand that this man equates educators and cops as equal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that too. He puts educators and police officers, law enforcement officers on the same level. Yeah. Um, So at the end, he asks, he gives us 10 questions we need to ask ourselves. Here we go. Round robin. Are we more than a political party? Should we be? No. No. Uh, do we actually have core values, values and ideals that we all share? Yes. yes. Um, does the Democratic creed represent those values? I mean, I... Uh, sure. It's maybe. unnecessary. It's unnecessary. Like, it's like whether or not it, re- whether or not it represents the values is not material to this. Um, do we really have a prime directive as a party? Do we really have a moral purpose? Yes, but I'm not going to say prime directive because I am so sick of these sci-fi references that I'm waiting this for this to turn into like some sci-fi fanfic with some really weird sex scenes. Like that's where I am with this whole prime directive. I really wish that that's what it were. I mean, it would be a lot more entertaining. Um, do we have a moral purpose? I don't know. I frankly, I don't I don't like that framing. I really don't. The framing sucks, but again, go read our yeah. fucking platform. Yeah. Do we have a clear vision of what we ultimately want to achieve? Yes. 
Yeah, I think we very much do. I want electoral gains and policy wins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you see the Democratic Party? Does the American public see it the same way? Who cares? This is the reason that, that that there is so much message testing. This is the reason why there are so many professionals that work on the way that we as a party talk um, to voters, speak in public, et cetera, because yeah, um, part of the deal is that we need to shape the way the American public sees our party. Um, Did you know that more than 60% of the people really like the clean energy plans of the wonderful federal legislation that passed last year? Clean energy plans, by the yeah. way, specific, I don't know, messaging. Yeah. Uh, what defines a Democrat, um, a person that's a registered Democrat? If you're registered as a Democrat, can you make a difference? Do you want to? Yes. And yes. What can you do to continue this conversation? Well, I'm not going to. No, I'm not. No. I could do a lot of things, but I'm not going to. Uh, what can you do to start this conversation with other Americans? Well, I'm not going to have this conversation with other Americans because I do not think that it is good or productive. Um, But I want to, before we wrap up, wrap up. I have one thing that I want to pull back to. There is a point towards the end of the book where he says that we need to make this set of values amongst ourselves, that it can't be handed down to us by the Democratic National Committee or by people in Washington, that it has to be us. And again, I don't know who us is, but do you know what I do know? I know that the Democratic National Committee is made up of people that were elected by people in their areas uh that i know that the platform committee of the democratic national convention yeah is there are a lot of regular people on it like if you are on state committee you know people that were on the democratic platform committee and you know people who are at the dnc taking votes yeah It's, is it a perfect system? No. But please stop undermining the fact that actual, real, everyday freaking people are the people that are at the bottom, uh, at the end of the day, building this. And I don't know who elites are. I don't know who us is. I don't know who them is. Um, And well, by the end of this book, I should know that, and I don't. Nope. And my overall general conclusion is that this book is complete garbage and absolutely minimizes so many people's lived experiences with sweeping generalizations, inaccurate history, and contradictory statements. It grossly, kind of like what you said, Jillian, grossly minimizes the astounding levels of hard work that a lot of really good people have done for years, especially in recent years that he apparently had in sand it's about. And it also gives a substantial amount of ink and credibility to a small number of loud voices rather than the actual majorities. 
And I'm so offended by all of this, like this entire book as a progressive Democrat professional political person with degrees in history and political science with over a decade of helping educate people and doing anti-racist work. And the fact that there is a growing cult like following around this book is disturbing. It seems to be the same folks who tell us to eat fewer avocados so we can buy a house and that we shouldn't have our student loans forgiven and that cops and the military are necessary and we can change them. And I am I am done with this. And I agree with Jillian, like at the outset, if you read this book and you found something really helpful in there, cool. Please stop peddling this to other people. If for nothing else in that section about race, the extreme white nationalist rhetoric that he sprinkles throughout, this book is dangerous and parrots Republican talking points. And it makes me feel like Jim Purvis is part of Project Veritas. Footnote, go look it up. <laughs> Angela, closing thoughts. I have never felt more simultaneously disturbed, enraged, but yet also exhausted by a uh, three-day period of time in my life as I have spent with Jim Purvis's book. Um, <laughs> you know, I wrote out my own 10 questions. I'm not going to read them off because I don't want, maybe some of them poke sharp sticks in eyes and and you know maybe i'm not going to do this but i don't think that this has any place within the, the pennsylvania democratic party at all I, I at all and i i think that at the barest of minimum there should be a conversation and there should be a greater vetting of the ideas that we are pushing forth because if you want to grow PA Dems as a whole, and you want to grow your local committee um, and county structure, this is not the way. You you are just, all you are doing is causing harm. Um, and in a, to agree with Katie, and I'm just going to leave it at this, do this, this whole thing. I, I don't know if it's better if it's a PSYOP or if it's worse if it's a PSYOP, but I find it really disturbing that a lot of people read this with that chapter on race included and was like, yeah, I feel this deeply. So I, I, I'm i plumb out of rage and I'm more in disappointment. Yeah, you know, I think that um, the time that is spent talking about messaging is probably too much um, because if we're going to talk about it, we should be talk talking about it while we're talking about getting people out on the doors and making phone calls um, and interacting with voters. Um, and if we're not doing that, then we're not doing what we need to do to get the message out. Like the message is useless if people aren't hearing it. And the work that we need to do is reaching out to the people and talking to them. Um, and 
This is a racket. This is this is not that. It's no. a racket. There's a it's lot of work sell. to be done, and this isn't it. This is selling a creed, not talking to voters. All right, <sighs> listen, gang. We did it. We got through it. Um, hopefully, next week we'll hit you with a more fun episode. Um, <laughs> we'll come back with a segment at the very least. Um, but uh, we will be back next week, not with this. You can email us at sistersofthenightcaucus at gmail.com. Um, you're more than welcome. Uh, uh, if you're following us on Twitter and you want to continue the discussion, uh, it's at the night caucus. Um, you know, we're here to have it. Um, and I think that you will find, um, frankly that I've already been doing that. Um, and we'll continue to do that, uh, because this is something that we think is really important to be, you know, to educate people about. So with that, I, I thank my sisters, Katie, Angela, and Emily, who had to, uh, who had to jump off because it's bedtime in, uh, in Belgium. And, uh, and of course, as always, uh, our amazing, uh, patient and kind and beautiful and wonderful producer, Dr. Ack, uh, you can find us, uh, on Twitter uh, and Facebook and Instagram at the Night Caucus. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Pods, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your pods. And of course, come join our community by becoming a Patreon supporter. 